Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 41. And this week, we're continuing our study in the New Testament. We're going to pick up with Matthew chapter 16. Now, chapter 16 continues opposition to Jesus. This time, it's the religious leaders who come to test Jesus, once again asking him for a sign. Now, what's unique here is that both parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, unite together against a common enemy. This would be like Democrats and Republicans uniting together. Jesus denied giving them a sign since many things already pointed to him as being the Messiah, and even chastises them, saying that they know how to read the signs in the skies, but they can't read the signs that are happening right before their eyes. Later on, Jesus uses this interaction with his Pharisees and Sadducees to teach um, his disciples the dangers of the doctrines of the religious leaders. Now, beginning at chapter 16, verse 13, with the opposition growing and the cross looming in the near future, Jesus takes his disciples to the far reaches of Jewish influence, the far northern extremity um, of the Jewish area of Israel. And from chapter 16, verse 13 through chapter 20, he gives his disciples some much-needed one-on-one teaching about his person and what was going to happen because of his rejection. So as they're separated from Jewish influence, Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. He doesn't want to know who others think he is. He wants to know who they think he is. And of course, Peter steps forward with his famous words, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after Peter's confession in Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus begins to speak about the next part of the Father's plan, which is the church. The kingdom would be postponed for the time being, and now the focus would be on the church. This in turn leads Jesus to begin to start talking about his crucifixion. Notice that phrase in verse 21. It says, from then on. Moving forward, the major theme was now the need for the cross rather than the imminent declaration of the kingdom. But obviously Peter, who likely typified the thinking of many of the disciples, didn't want this to happen. But then Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter's desire for this not to happen to Jesus was something that Satan tried to offer Jesus at his temptation. Remember when Jesus, excuse me, when Satan said you can have the crown without the cross. Same type of temptation here. Verse 23 of chapter 16 says it clearly. You are seeing these things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. This is Jesus talking to Peter. No sooner than Jesus began talking about his death does he then lead the conversation towards discipleship. This will be a difficult change in the plans for the disciples to process, and it would require even more commitment and even more loyalty. However, Jesus does encourage them at the end of the chapter saying that some here will not die until they see him in his glory. What is he talking about, you might ask? Well, he's talking about what happens in the very next chapter, because in chapter 17, Jesus is transfigured before a group of three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they are permitted to see Jesus in all his glory. And when Peter, James, and John see Jesus transfigured before them, Peter comes up with the idea of making three memorials to Jesus. Um, excuse me, three memorials, one to Jesus, one to Moses, and one to Elijah. But then God speaks directly to the three of them, telling them to pay attention to Jesus. He is the one that's most important. And as they went down the mountain, Jesus told them not to tell anybody what they had witnessed um, of his transfiguration until after his resurrection. The proclamation of the king and the kingdom would begin again after the resurrection. This temporary silence was important because of the popular political views of Messiah and because the central proof of Jesus' Messiahship would be his resurrection. But even though these three disciples just witnessed the transfiguration moments earlier, when they get to the base of the mountain, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. Jesus had delegated the power to heal to his disciples, but it seems that they were treating it as a magical formula that worked regardless of their faith. But Jesus helped them to understand 
that continual dependence on Him rather than simple belief in who He is, is what constitutes strong faith. Strong faith was also believing in God's plan for Jesus. So for a second time, He gave the disciples a clear announcement of His passion to come. It seems that the disciples grasped His death, but not the resurrection part. Their faith in His plan was still causing them grief. It was still causing them angst. Now the chapter closes out, chapter 17 closes out with an account of paying taxes. Even though Jesus was free from the law's demands, being God's son, he still submitted to the law's demands and miraculously provided the means for his disciples to to submit to the law as well. Chapter 18 continues Jesus' discipleship teaching. The first part of chapter 18 concerns humility, and Jesus uses the example of a child to rebuke their need to discuss positions. In one sense, the disciples had already humbled themselves as children when they believed on Jesus. This gave them access to the kingdom. However, in another sense, they had abandoned the attitude when they became concerned about their status in the kingdom. They needed to return to their former childlike attitude. The humble disciple will also be one who does not put a stumbling block in the path of another disciple, especially a child. So Jesus continues his concern for these little ones by means of a parable. And the parable portrays a man with 100 sheep and a small one that wanders away. The man goes looking for the sheep, and when he finds it, he rejoices greatly. This illustrates, it. This illustrates kind of God's will towards the life of the little ones, towards the children. Now, the second section of chapter 18 deals with the restoration of a wayward disciple. Jesus proceeds to explain what a humble disciple should do when a brother or sister uh, uh, has wandered from the shepherd and the sheep. From a discussion on discipline, Jesus moves right into a discussion on forgiveness, which rounds out chapter 18. One author connected these two passages beautifully. He said this, Sometimes zealous disciples spend too much time studying church discipline and too little time studying the importance of forgiveness. Jesus recounts the parable of the unforgiving servant to help better explain the role of forgiveness. Those who have been forgiven by God can and must forgive their fellow humans. To be forgiven is to be empowered to forgive. No matter how offensively one has been treated by a fellow human, there is no comparison to the heinous rebellion of wicked humans against a holy and loving God. Anyone who has truly experienced the compassion of the Heavenly Father should have little problem showing genuine compassion to fellow humans. Well, that pushes us right into chapter 19, and chapter 19 begins with some Pharisees who came to see Jesus and trap him with a question about divorce. The reason Matthew says it was a trap was because there were two rabbinical schools who had differing views of divorce. The liberal sect believed in divorce and remarriage for almost anything, while the conservative sect um, were very strict as to what they permitted divorce for. Jesus appeals to the original source in Genesis 1 and 2, and the reality, however, is that laws were instituted to deal with sin. But this does not mean that sin is therefore permissible. God hates divorce because of the damage it brings to a marital relationship. So in light of all this, the disciples presumed it would be better not to marry. Well, it seems that the disciples didn't connect the sanctity of marriage discussion that Jesus had with children, because children are the ones who are greatly affected by divorce, abuse, and broken families. But the disciples thought of them more as a bother. The disciples need to be scolded, which is what Jesus does. Now in the second half of chapter 19, Jesus begins to address the subject of wealth. Someone approached Jesus with a question that Jesus used as a means of teaching his disciples, something that he often did. Jesus encounters a young, rich ruler who wants to gain eternal life, and this young man's idea of how to obtain it was far from what Jesus had been preaching. There's only one person who is good enough to gain eternal life through good works, and that person is God. Now, ironic, isn't it, that this rich young man said he had obeyed all the commandments, yet he was still uncertain about his eternal destination. 
Furthermore, the young man was not willing to part with his riches to follow Jesus. There's a consistent pattern that Jesus has been following about discipleship, and it's worth noting here. First, Jesus would call a person to follow him, which means to begin learning from him about being a disciple. Second, Jesus would call them to believe that he is the God-man, or he is the Messiah. And third, he called his disciples to continue following him because he had an important job for them to do. It's kind of that discipleship process that you see in the text there. The teaching on wealth and rewards continues into chapter 20. This parable taught the disciples not to think of heavenly rewards in terms of justice getting in proportion to what they had deserved. They should think of them in terms of grace, any reward being an act of God's grace. Modern disciples of Jesus should view heavenly rewards that very same way. The only reason we will receive any reward is that God has called us to be his workers. We can't count on God dealing with us justly, or excuse me, we can count on God dealing with us justly, graciously, and generously, whether we serve God all of our lives or whether we serve God only a short time. Now, for a third time, Jesus' passion was predicted to the disciples as they made their way up to Jerusalem. Right on the heels of Jesus predicting his passion, the mother of Zebedee's brothers, James and John, um, asks if her sons could have favored positions in the kingdom. Had James and John so quickly forgotten what Jesus said, um, like four verses earlier, the greatest in the kingdom will be the least? This makes me entertain the thought that if the men who were, um, who were with Jesus constantly getting to hear his teachings, if they didn't get it, then the crowds would have, a, would have had a much difficult time understanding Jesus as well. Now Jesus finishes up the reminder to his disciples that even he himself did not come to be great, but to serve. Verse 28 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now the last miracle in chapter 20 is the last public miracle that Matthew records Jesus before his death. Even though the nation as a whole rejected Jesus, individuals continued to believe in him that he was the Messiah. All right, now chapters 21 through 28, um, which is the end of the book of Matthew, happens in a period of just six days. The first part of chapter 1 is what is known as the triumphal entry, or what we call today Palm Sunday. Jesus formally presents himself as the Messiah, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. By the way, note the significance of the donkey. Rulers rode donkeys in Israel during times of peace. This was a sign of their humble service of the people. Warriors rode horses. Jesus was preparing to declare his messianic uh, messiahship, excuse me, by fulfilling this messianic prophecy. By coming in peace, he was extending grace rather than judgment to the city. He was coming as a servant now, but he would return as a king on a horse later on. That's in Revelation 19. Now, as Jesus entered the city and soon entered the temple, he turns over the table of the money changers. The temple had become a place where robbery was taking place. God's people were being taken advantage of by these money changers. And while in the temple, he also healed the blind and the lame, which in turn caused even the children to begin praising Jesus. Even they realized what was happening. But a cry uh, that the religious leaders were annoyed with. Jesus left Jerusalem for the evening, going to Bethany to stay with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Chapter 21, verse 18 tells us the next day on his way back to Jerusalem, Jesus goes over to a fig tree to see if there's anything, uh, see if he can pick a fig off of it to eat because he's hungry, but there are only leaves on it. And he curses the fig tree and it withers up. This symbolic act shows us that Israel had rejected Jesus. Therefore, this generation would be judged by God, withholding the kingdom from them. On his way back into the temple, the religious leaders confronted Jesus, asking him about his authority to heal, teach, and cast out the money changers. In answer, um, uh, 
to these three questions that, that he's asked, Jesus rolls out three parables in the preceding verses. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the wicked farmers, and the parable of the royal wedding. Yeah, that goes into 22, verse 1 through 14. All three of these parables deal with the religious leaders. The first parable condemned the conduct of these religious leaders. The second parable demonstrates that the religious leaders have forfeited their right to guide the nation of Israel. And the third parable's message is a contempt with which Israel as a whole had treated God's grace to her. The main point of all three parables, look when you look at them all together, is that God would judge Israel's leaders because they had rejected Jesus, their Messiah, because of national pride. The Jews had come to believe that just being a Jew was all the qualifications necessary to enter the kingdom. They didn't get what Jesus was coming to do. Now, beginning in 22, verse 15, after laying blame directly at the feet of these religious leaders, um, these religious leaders meet together to discuss a way to get rid of Jesus. He's obviously upsetting their apple cart. And three different groups of religious leaders confront Jesus, attempting to show that he was no better than any other rabbi. The first group to confront Jesus is the Pharisees and the Herodians, chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. They try to get Jesus into the controversy of taxes, that is, the taxes that they, the Jews were to pay to the Romans. The second group was the Sadducees in chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. And they try to trap Jesus into a theological issue. This particular one is marriage and, and, and how marriage is dealt with in the resurrection. The third group is back to the Pharisees in chapter 22, verses 34 to 46. And this time, the question is, which is the most important commandment? And this is a familiar text. Jesus replies with the word, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then he had a second one, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you take a hard look at the Ten Commandments, Jesus here was summarizing them. The first four commandments are directed towards loving God, and the last six are related to loving your neighbor. Now, after Jesus had successfully answered all their questions, he had a question to ask them in chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. Basically, Jesus wanted the Pharisees to explain what the scriptures taught about the Messiah. Jesus asked the Pharisees about the Messiah's ancestry, and they answered correctly, saying that he is a descendant of David, but they were missing the bigger point. Jesus' point was that the Messiah was not just David's descendant, but that he was also God's son. He was bringing together the concepts that the Messiah was the human son of David and the divine son of God. Well, defeated in the debate, the religious leaders withdraw from Jesus to the temple. And that brings us into chapter 23. And chapter 23 is one of the most scorching denunciations of the religious leaders in all of the Gospels. Jesus publicly rebukes them for their pride, hypocrisy, and spiritual blindness. Jesus addresses the multitudes first, encouraging them not to make the same mistakes as the Jewish leaders did, who are allowing their traditional legalism to blind them to the claims of Jesus being the Messiah. Then in the second part of chapter 23, he focuses on the religious leaders themselves in the form of what is called seven woes. Let me list a summary of each woe. First, the first woe is that they obstructed the way of salvation. Second, they belittled proselytes or those who wanted to convert to Judaism. Third, they created escape routes to avoid personal commitments. Fourth, they were picky with minor legal matters and missed the major moral problems of the day. Fifth, they emphasized external actions but neglected the internal heart problems. Sixth, they put on the appearance of righteousness. And seventh, they failed to identify with the sins of the past. And now judgment was going to fall on this generation of Jews that had rejected Jesus. The judgment that Jesus announced in strong terms was not something that delighted in him, that delighted him. Um, it broke his heart because here is the people that he was sent to and they 
just completely reject him, religious leaders, multitudes and all. Now that the kingdom was officially postponed because of Israel's rejection, the disciples seem eager to know when he is going to return again to set up the kingdom. This leads us right into Matthew 24 and 25, which is called the Olivet Discourse. And this is the only lengthy prophetic sermon recorded in the Gospels. Let me just give you the bare bones outline of it, so at least you know what's in it. Chapter 24, verses 4 to 14, is an overview of the tribulation period in the future. Verses 15 to 28 of the chapter are some noted highlights about the second half of the tribulation. The second coming of Christ is mentioned in verses 29 through 31. And then from chapter 24, verse 32 to chapter 25, verse 30, Jesus uses seven parables to hammer home what he had just revealed to his disciples about the future. Those parables uh, include lessons on imminency, urgency, preparation, vigilance, and faithfulness in light of the Lord's return to earth. Then Jesus concludes the Olivet Discourse with the King's Judgment of the Nations in chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. This is a judgment that will take place after Jesus returns, but before he sets up his millennial kingdom. So that's a brief summary of chapters 24 and 25 for the Olivet Discourse. We could spend a whole year going through and discussing that, of which we don't have time for. Now, the last part of Matthew is chapters 26 through 28, which is the culmination of Matthew's story. This section is divided into two smaller parts. Chapters 26 and 27 are the king's crucifixion, and chapter 28 is about the king's resurrection. So chapter 26 begins with the religious leaders secretly meeting to find a way to get rid of Jesus. Next is the anointing of Jesus for the soon-coming burial. You know, it's interesting here because the displeasure of the disciples at the apparent waste of money showed their lack of spiritual understanding as they neared the time of Jesus' death. Ironically, the betrayal payment for Judas was arranged immediately after the anointing of Mary. Thirty pieces of silver was the betrayal price. If these coins were shekels, then the total amount would be equal to about four months' pay for the average day laborer. Well, very soon Jesus was to become the Passover lamb through his death. And so he institutes here the Lord's Supper as it's become called. Um, and Jesus initiated this as he took the bread to show what would happen to his body and the cup to illustrate what he would do through the shedding of his blood. Then Jesus predicted that the disciples would abandon him and would deny him. Jesus gave this prediction before the disciples even left the upper room at the end of the Lord's Supper here. For the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was presented as knowing exactly what lay ahead of him. He was not a victim of fate. He deliberately approached his death as a willing sacrifice. Next, we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus seems to be anticipating his death with a calm attitude and courage, but in the Garden, he is under deep emotional stress. He shows us his humanity. You know, martyrs can face death bravely, but self-sacrifice demands even greater strength. Jesus knew that God would forsake him when he died because of the punishment he had to bear, so his anguish and emotional stress is to be expected. Well, while he's still in the garden, the religious leaders come with Judas to arrest Jesus. And once Jesus is arrested, the trials begin. First, there's a trial before the Sanhedrin. And during this trial is when Peter denies Jesus three times. These denials were predicted by Jesus. And Matthew includes that detail because foretelling the future would be something that only the Messiah could do. Move into chapter 27, the Sanhedrin makes their formal decision about how they would present Jesus to Pilate so that he could be put to death. Jesus feels remorse over what he has done, and he hangs himself. 
than Jesus' trial before Pilate. And Matthew's account of the trial before Pilate makes, makes Jesus' innocence very, very clear. You know, you think about it, no one took the life of Jesus. Jesus laid it down. And the main part of chapter 27 is the crucifixion of Jesus and the mockery of Jesus. The Romans reserved crucifixion for the worst criminals from the lowest classes of society. Roman citizens were actually exempt from crucifixion unless Caesar himself ordered it. For the Jews, crucifixion was even more horrible because it symbolized a person dying under God's curse. Israel's leaders hung up those who had died under God's curse for others to see and learn from. Jesus bore God's curse for the sins of humanity so we would not have to experience that curse. It's pretty powerful. When Jesus finally gives up his spirit in death, chapter 27, verse 50, supernatural events happen. Specifically, the inner veil of the temple is torn, and now access to God through the blood of Jesus is now made, made available to all. Jesus is taken off the cross and buried in a tomb, but he wouldn't be left there for long. Three days later, he rises again. And that leads us right into chapter 28. And chapter 28 is called the resurrection of the king. Jesus rises from the grave. He appears first to the women and then to the disciples. The religious leaders attempt to cover up the resurrection. And since that day, there are still people today who are out to disprove the resurrection of Christ. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples to give them some more final instructions. Instructions we aptly call the Great Commission, about how we have a commission to go out and make disciples of all nations. But the climax to what all of Jesus has accomplished, especially in the book of Matthew, is presented in verse 18. Listen to what it says. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So because of the resurrection from the grave... Jesus, the king, now has authority from heaven and on earth. This is the king speaking, the same one who lives to make intercession for us, the same one who promised never to leave us or forsake us, the same one who died on the cross for our sins, gave his life up willingly, the same one who will come back in the same manner in which he left. And that's the promise that one day he's going to come back and one day he's going to set right everything that's wrong with this world and the older I get, the more I look forward to that coming day. Now that finishes the gospel. All right, well, that finishes the first gospel of Matthew. And I think it will be best wait. Um, I think it's best for us to wait uh, till next week to talk about Mark. Um, I think you'll read a little bit into Mark at the end of the week, but we will save the entire discussion about Mark for next time. So I hope you've enjoyed Matthew. Email me any questions at BibleReading at LBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.